Bible prophecies foretell the establishment of a world government and a one world religious system in the end time. For decades, global elites and religious leaders have been positioning these entities to rule the world. Well, we will analyze these events, something the Bible warns a true Christian should not participate in, on this edition of End of the Age. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for joining me on this edition of End of the Age. I'm Dave Robbins with End Time Ministries. There are, the, the, the Bible prophecy is given for many reasons. It really helps to build our faith in the Word of God because I can use current events that are happening now that were prophesied about 2,000 to 2,500 years ago. So when we show you these events are coming to pass right now, it builds your faith in the only book on the planet that gave those prophecies. So build your faith in the Word of God. Then when we present the gospel and biblical foundational principles on how to live as a Christian, then you'll say, wow, I think these guys probably know what they're talking about. I probably need to line up to this book. So that's one reason. It also gives us timelines and things to follow, events to watch for, knowing how close we are uh, to the second coming of Jesus Christ puts a sense of urgency in us. Hey, I need to probably prepare for that day. But it also kind of gives us a list of things that we cannot participate in in the end time. Number one, I can't take the mark of the beast because the Bible gives a, um, that says that there are consequences for that. There's actually, you take the mark of the beast, pledge allegiance to the Antichrist, there's eternal damnation as a reward for that. However, there's also, there's other things. The world government can't, I don't want to participate in that. I don't want to be involved in the world army that comes down against Israel to battle of Armageddon. But, my subject today, the world religion, that's something that, A true Christian cannot participate in. A true Christian should never participate in ecumenism. All of these Protestant churches going back home to the the mother Catholic church. And I should never participate in any type of interfaithism where all of these religions around the world are gathered under one umbrella, a belief system that, hey, there's many ways to heaven and that there are, you know, the pluralism of religions is willed by God, and uh, I can call God Buddha and be a Buddhist, but yet I'll make it to heaven. Th- that's something you cannot get caught up in as a true Christian, because God's going to judge that entity before it's over with. And you, you, there's only one way to be saved, and that's it. And it's, so it's very important that you understand the prophecies of the Bible, because there are some warnings. Now. We don't teach prophecy as fear. 
We teach it as hope, faith, love, that let's prepare to, for the great revival that's coming in the near future and then to get out of here when the Lord comes back. That's what we teach prophecy for. But we also have to talk about some of these things that you as a Christian cannot participate in. Okay, so the tablet. They published an article called, uh, the title of article, The Pope Says That is a Refusal to Accept Vatican II is for, the, is for Church. And so what, the, what it's talking about here, and I'm going to get off into Vatican II here in just a little bit and tell you what all that was about. But Pope Francis has repeatedly stressed that the aim of his pontificate, the whole reason he's a pope, is the implementation of the council, Vatican Council II. Pope Francis said that the refusal to accept the reforms of the Second Vatican Council, Vatican council II for the Catholic Church is the major problem facing the Catholic Church today. People who did not want to adhere to the reforms that was implemented or the decrees that were given at Vatican II. Pope Francis, who he was speaking to or during an interview with the editors of the European Jesuit Journals, and he also spoke about Ukraine, and he warned that those seeking to roll back Vatican II reforms have gained a strong foothold in the United States. And he said that the current problem of the church is precisely the non-acceptance of the Vatican Council and restorationism has come to gag the council. The number of groups of restorers, for example, in the United States, there are many, and that is very significant. So Francis has, according to the article, Francis has a little time, has little time. He's very impatient with the opponents of Vatican II. He has repeatedly stressed that the aim of his pontificate is the implementation of the council and its edicts and that those who reject it, here it is, do not stand with the church. Now imagine being a Catholic individual who did not like the reforms of Vatican II, and then the Pope says, you don't stand with the church if you're not for Vatican II. And so think of that position. Those who do not stand with the Vatican II do not stand with the church. The article says, over the last nine years, the Jesuit Pope has faced strong opposition to his pontificate, mainly from groups in the United States, Europe, and Latin America. And they discuss his, the loosening of his rules, allowing for divorced, divorced and, uh, and remarried to receive communion, and his focus on issues such as the environment uh, and the, the plight of the refugees, his refusal to follow the uh, monarchical uh, model of the papacy, and liturgical traditionalists, remain incensed by his restrictions on the old right. There are many people who do not like the reforms of the church, Catholics, that do not like the reforms of Vatican II. And I'll explain to you that in great detail here in just a moment. The, the, um, the church uh, saying that, hey, we need to have dialogue with other religions and we need to have dialogue with the Protestant daughters that have broke off of the Catholic church over time. I'll give you a better explanation here um, after the break. But folks, we're talking about, and this is leading to, 
that prophesied one world religion. Revelation 13 is devoted specifically to end time events. Verses 1 through 8 describe the one world government. 11 through 14 focus on the one world religion along with the false prophet. And then 16 through 18, talking about the mark of the beast, they outline the Antichrist global economic sanctioning system in the end time. And so it's all leading us towards the master plan of the dragon. The Bible says the, the dragon or Satan gives this entity its seat, power, and its great authority. This is where they get their authority from. The world religion and the world government is from Satan himself. And we'll talk about it more on the other side of the break. Satan and the elites of this world don't want you to understand the timeline leading to the second coming of Jesus. You can pinpoint where we are in the end time, understand how you fit in, and be filled with hope in God's plan by watching the future according to Bible prophecy. Go to endtime.com slash future or call 800 end time. That's 800-363-8463. Move Mountains with Irvin Baxter. This book by Irvin's grandson provides 30 days of devotion that will enhance your relationship with God and others. Authentic illustrations from early morning devotions at end time will help you find your purpose and eliminate fears. Commit to taking this 30-day journey and experience real life change. Get your book for only $14.99. Call 1-800-363-8463 or go to endtime.com slash move. Hi, I'm Judy Baxter. When Irvin and I got married, we didn't realize that our calling would be a prophetic ministry. Since we started End Time Ministries, there have been many times we weren't sure how we would pay the bills. But God has always provided. We started with the magazine, then went on radio and TV. And now we have the Jerusalem Prophecy College in Israel and online and End of the Age Plus. The mission has always been to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the End Time message. Through the years, my husband would say, we will see revival like never before in the last days. We are living in the end time now. Thank you for walking this journey with us and continuing in prayer. You are a part of the team. Thank you for your generous support. It is necessary for God's purpose. The most important thing is that you are ready when the Lord comes. Our hope is to help prepare you for that day. God bless you and we love you. The goal of the Antichrist will be to lord over this global government and to force every human to pledge allegiance to him or to actually worship him. Revelation 13, 8, the Bible says, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, slain from the foundation of the world. Make sure your name is written in that book by being born again. So in order for this to be fully realized, the Bible says the Antichrist will have two methods of enforcement. Number one, he will form an alliance with the largest religious organization in the world, Christianity, I should say quote-unquote Christianity, and with the leader of the one world religion, the false prophet. The penalty for nonconformity will be the one world religion, uh, to this one world religion will be death eventually. 
According to Revelation 13, the Bible says, And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, and that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast, that they should be killed. Secondly, he will implement a system of economic control upon the human race, more commonly known as the mark of the beast. And those who will not participate in this system will not be able to buy or sell or function in society. And, uh, and it's going you know, to make it so they can't function in society at all. It's going to be very, very, very difficult. To economically sanction an individual, yes, that surely will sting. However, to murder under the guise of Christianity, those who will not comply sounds incomprehensible. But that is until you consider that there are world leaders who have already proposed this exact course of action. Now, if you remember through history, there have been people that have been put to death because they would not conform to the edicts of the elitists or the people running the government or different things throughout time or would not conform to a major religion. Christians. Well, there are, there are people today who be, have this mindset. You remember the book Perestroika by Gorbachev? In his book, he said that there are three root causes for war. Political conflicts, religious conflicts, and economic conflicts. And his offered solution was one world government, a global religious system, and a global economy. Well, unbeknownst to him, he proposed exactly what the Bible prophesies is going to happen in Revelation 13. On page 231 of his book, Mr. Gorbachev put together an all-embracing system of international security. And item number four, double I, of this list states that we must extirpate all genocide, apartheid, and religious exclusiveness... Now, to extirpate means to kill off. And therefore, in his book, Perestroika, Mr. Gorbachev said that we must kill off or abolish all religious-exclusive individuals. Now, individuals are considered religiously exclusive if they believe their religion is the only religion through which people can be saved. For example, Jesus Christ said, Except you believe that I am the Messiah, you'll die in your sins. That's John 8, 24. Well, according to Gorbachev and his cronies, this would be considered religious exclusiveness. Also, the scriptures tell us, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. That's Acts 4, 12. So these types of belief would be considered extreme religious exclusiveness by the one world religion crowd. And this is why a true Christian would never, you could never align yourself up with these uh, interfaithism because they believe there are many ways to heaven. The teachings of Jesus would definitely uh, be religiously exclusive. He said, I am the door to the sheepfold. And anybody that comes up any other way, the same as a thief and a robber. That's John 10, 1. So Mikhail Gorbachev says the entire world needs to be re-educated to believe all religions are equally valid 
And the process is already very far advanced. It's happening as we speak, ladies and gentlemen. So what is the perceived solution for religious exclusiveness and other conflicts on, in the world? Well, it's religious inclusiveness. And that means, hey, if your religion is good for you, that's what you want to believe, then I'll respect it and I don't argue against it. But you respect my religion and everybody respects everyone, we validate everyone, and thus we remove religious conflict. Well, of course, that's diametrically opposed to the Bible. Yes, we are supposed to all get along and love everybody, but Jesus said, go ye into all the world and make disciples of them, baptize them, teach them in order to convert them. Right? That's the Great Commission. And that's the concept, though, this interfaithism, that's the concept being considered today among the intelligentsia of our world. And it is filtering down into the general populace. Just everybody get along. Everybody's going to be saved no matter what they believe, no matter whether they believe in God or not. They're all going to make it to heaven. I actually just watched a very influential religious leader that just that that said that recently and i thought you've got to be kidding me very influential actually he said it a few years ago um but in the grand scheme of things this is a 2000 year old prophecy folks and this is what people are being fed today and so many people are buying into it hey everybody's going to be saved that's not what the bible says and so this term interfaithism is somewhat of a new term among us, relatively. However, many of our most famous political and religious leaders have actually embraced interfaithism. You remember uh, one of those, uh, President George Bush. In an interview, he said that Muslims, Jews, and Christians all pray to the same God and that they are all going to heaven. I have a clip for you. Let's listen to it. Do we all worship the same God, Christian and Muslim? I think we do. Does we have different routes of getting to the Almighty? Does Bin Laden, to, does uh, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi pray to the same God that you and I do? Uh, I think they pray to a false God. Otherwise, they wouldn't be killing uh, innocent lives like they have been. Do Christians and non-Christians, do Muslims go to heaven in your mind? Yes, they do. Well, there you have it. President Bush said that Christians and Muslims can all go to heaven. Would you say that a Muslim will make it? Don't even believe Jesus was God or that Jesus died on the cross? That's the very essence of our Christian belief system. That Jesus Christ came and died on the cross. He died, He was buried, He rose again. That's the gospel of the kingdom of God. That's the gospel by which you are saved according to uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. The death, the burial, the resurrection of who? Jesus Christ. But you see this, the, the, these bridges that have been built over this grand canyon of differences, but they had to build those bridges. Why? For the cause of the world community. This world religious system is being established to make sure they, they, they gather the religions of the world for the cause of the world government. It's Revelation 13 the entire chapter is devoted to this. 
And so what President Bush is speaking of here is that's religious inclusiveness or interfaithism. Now, there have been many efforts over the years to unite all religions to interfaithism. Uh, 1893, the first Parliament of World's Religions. You see, this didn't start yesterday. Back in in, uh, 1893, the first Parliament of World's Religions was held in Chicago, and its stated goal was to cultivate harmony among the world's religions and spiritual communities and to foster their engagement with the world and its guiding institutions in order to achieve a just, peaceful, and sustainable world. They were talking about sustainability all the way back then, way over 100 years ago. And actually, it was way ahead of its time because not much happened for the next on interfaithism for about the next 80 years or so. But then in, when was it? Uh, there have been many efforts. In August of 1985, you remember, several things happened. Uh, different religious uh, gatherings of, of Jews, Christians, Muslims. In August of 1985, Pope John Paul II visited Morocco, you remember. And Pope John Paul II, he, when he visited Morocco at the invitation of King Hassan II, and he became the first pope to visit an officially Islamic country, at the invitation of its religious leader. And there at the historic meeting with thousands of Muslim youth in Casablanca Stadium, he said that we believe in the same God, the one God, the living God. We, both Christians and Muslims. The Pope actually made that statement. But I told you that Muslims don't even believe Jesus was God. I mean, do Christians and Muslims believe in the same God? I'm asking you, do you believe that? No, absolutely not. Again, Christians believe Jesus is God and that He died on the cross for all humanity. Muslims do not believe Jesus is God and deny that He died on the cross. Could you say that individual would be saved? I can't. You say, well, wow, that's a bold statement. I understand. But the fact of the matter is we got to teach the Bible, folks. So now interfaithists were taking huge leaps of blind faith. I mean, this continued in in 86 when Pope John Paul II convened the World Day of Prayer. Pope John Paul was convinced that prayer could bring believers together, an idea that inspired the 86 World Day of Prayer in, where was that, Um, Assisi, Italy. And uh, this was an unprecedented gathering at the Pope's invitation It drew leaders of Jews, Buddhists, uh, Shintoists, Muslims, Zoroastrians, Hindus, Unitarians, traditional African and Native American religions, and many others together under the roof of the Basilica of St. Francis. And they all prayed side by side, Catholics, Orthodox, Protestant leaders, for what? World peace. You say, well, Dave, that's, that's no big deal. They're just gathering to pray for world peace. Oh, folks, there's so much more to it than that. If you understand the goal and why all of this was put together, uh, in 93, the Parliament of World's Religions was held in Chicago again on the 100th anniversary of the first Parliament of World's Religions. And at that meeting, Catholics, Protestants, Hindus, Jews, Muslims, Sikhs, Astorians, Wiccans, which are witches... I mean, they want everybody on board with this. 
uh, indigenous people, and many other were in attendance. And at this meeting, this is the goal of all of this interfaithism, folks. At that meeting in 1993 in Chicago, a global ethic was adopted, a global uh, belief system. It was authored by eminent Catholic theologian Hans Kuhn. And a global ethic, again, it's a, it's a, um, a global belief statement. The essence of the global ethic can be captured in three quotes from the document. Number one, it said that we affirm that a common set of core values is found in the teachings of the religions and that these form the basis for a global ethic that all religions can agree upon. Because prior to that, most of them didn't even talk to each other because they thought, well, hey, we believe that we're the only ones that have the plan of salvation. We believe we're the only ones, okay? And so they didn't even really, there was no dialogue. Also, this global ethic said that there already exist ancient guidelines for human behavior, which are found in the teachings of the religions of the world, and which are the condition for a sustainable, here it is, world order. We want to gather these religions together and to get them to advocate for the world governing system. And then they said, then Hans Kuhn put together and it says, we must sink our narrow differences for the cause of the world community. There it is, the world government practicing a culture of solidarity and relatedness. Now, think about that. Sink our narrow differences between the religions. Narrow differences such as, was Jesus God or was He not? Was He the, uh, the Messiah that we have been looking for or was He not? Was Jesus crucified on the cross or was He not? Narrow differences, folks. Or is Allah God or is Jehovah God or is Brahma God? Narrow differences? I mean, that's what they said in the global ethic. Why? so the internationalist can realize the dream of a world community or a world government. And this is the thinking that drives interfaithism. Again, these are things that you absolutely, as a Christian, a true Christian, you absolutely cannot be a part of that in the end time. Because it's not based on the truth, and they're basically telling people that, hey, you can be saved when they will not be. What a travesty. And God's not pleased with that. So that brings us to the ultimate goal of interfaithism. Interfaithism actually realizes there are two major religions on the earth, Islam and Christianity. Islam claims about, what, 1.57 billion followers, which is about 23% of the world's population. Christianity claims 2.2 billion followers, about 33% of the world's population. Now, together, Islam and Christianity, you've got what? 56 plus percent of the world's population. If you're going to start a world religion, that's where you're going to start, right? And so we'll talk about more when we get back. Whether it's a global pandemic, threat of war, or floundering economies, end time events are happening around the world every day. How can you have peace in a world of such great uncertainty? With the End Time Magazine subscription, you can gain a deeper understanding of current events and its prophesied repercussions. End Time Magazine's exclusive content and prophetic insight allows you to understand where we are in the end time. It will give you peace when horrific news and events happen. 
When you subscribe today to End Time Magazine for 12 months for just $19.99, you can have hope for the future because you will understand what the Bible says about the time we are living in. You'll get access to exclusive articles like the prophesied American-Israeli Alliance, End Time Do's and Don'ts, and Could School Choice Save America? Subscribe for you or a friend right now. Go to endtime.com or call 1-800-END-TIME. That's 1-800-END-TIME. Symbols and prophecies within the book of Revelation have perplexed Christians and unbelievers around the world. In his final work, Revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ Part 2, the late Irvin Baxter unlocks the mystery of the book of Revelation with in-depth analysis and commentary like you've never heard before. These comprehensive study tools, available for $299, will deepen your biblical understanding. Don't miss this special offer. Call 1-800-END-TIME or go to endtime.com. If your station only carries the first 30 minutes of End of the Age, go to endtime.com and click the watch button to continue today's broadcast. You can also finish up later by clicking the archive button. Now, the interfaith movement says that if these two religions, Christians and Muslims, can, could form an alliance together, then they could bring the entire world together, the religions of the world. So with the goal of the world government in mind, interfaithism is the mechanism being used by the global elite to unite all the religions of the world. doesn't matter what you worship, that's irrelevant to them because they've got a goal of this world government in mind. Whether you worship the sun, the moon, the stars, you worship thousands of gods, they absolutely could care less. Now, I remember uh, when uh, Mr. Robert Mueller, he was an uh, assistant secretary general. Uh, He proposed the United Nations of Religions. And he was the assistant secretary general to three secretary generals at the United Nations. He worked at the UN for 38 years, and he was an open advocate of a one-world government. In an interview with my father-in-law, Irvin Baxter, back when it was Politics and Religion Radio, Mueller made the following statement. He said, we have, he said Irvin, we have brought together the, the world together as far as we can politically. We, and he claimed that to bring about a true world government, the world must be brought together spiritually. And then he said... We need a United Nations of Religions. The the political leaders meet together every day at the United Nations and they talk together about the political aspects of it. But this has produced a consensus of opinions so that we actually have a world community, which for the most part speaks with a common voice. But then he said the religious leaders, they won't even speak to one another uh, most of the time, so we need a United Nations of Religions. What is he trying to create? A world-governing body. So the unification of the world's religions cannot be complete unless Christianity, and I say that loosely, I mean everybody that goes to a church and considers themselves a Christian, as a whole is along for the ride. Consequently, the almost 500-year-old rift between Catholics and Protestants that started back in the um, 1517 at the Reformation, they believe that that has to be mended, right? So under, that, un, under the 
under this, the internationalists have implemented a two-pronged approach to establishing the global religious system, interfaithism and ecumenism. So when we talk about uniting Christianity under ecumenism, ecumenism, and I'm I'm getting to Vatican II. (laughs) Just have a little, I'm I'm getting there, which are my original article, but I I had to go through all of this. I got to set the stage. So ecumenism is the movement promoting unity among the Christian churches, the, the Catholic church, the Protestants that broke off of that, among the Christian churches and all of those denominations, Episcopalians, Lutherans, Baptists, Methodists, Nazarene, all, all down the line. The effort to unify all Christians began, the ecumenism, began in earnest with Vatican Council II in 1962. Tom Ryan, who was the director of the Loyola Institute for Ministry, he stated this, This shift at Vatican II included the Catholic Church's attitude towards other religions, and before Vatican Council II, Catholics weren't supposed to even visit each other's denominations and their houses of worship. He said this, very important, Catholics looked down on other religions and thought of them as condemned to hell. If you weren't a Catholic, you were hell-bound, prior to Vatican Council II. <coughs> so, now, Vatican Council II. This, this goes back to my original article, where Pope Francis was saying, if you're not on board with Vatican Council II, you're not part of the church. He said that uh, yesterday, when I got the article. So, Vatican Council II. From Vatican Council II, called by Pope John XXIII, the Roman Catholic Church issued the call for all of her departed daughters, speaking of the Protestants, to come home. From the Reformation, everybody that broke off the Catholic Church all the way down the line, they issued a call. Hey, we need to unite. And the compelling argument behind the call to the Protestants was the words of Jesus Himself. They said, hey that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, and that um, they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. That's John 17, 21. And then John 13, 35. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if you have love one for another. So the, the Catholic Church said, in essence, look, How can we ever win the world when we as Christians are so divided? But remember in the background, the goal of all of this is world government. Okay? You got to keep that in mind. So, there was a powerful appeal to this argument. After all, who would not want all Christians to be united together? Well, hence Pope Francis' position earlier... In the article that I read, those who do not stand with the Vatican Council II do not stand with the Catholic Church. He's dealing with a lot of people in the Catholic Church that do not want, do not uh, adhere to Vatican Council II. And Pope Francis said, hey, this is the, this is the reason for my pontificate is to, I, I am promoting Vatican Council II and the uh, decrees that came from that. Pope Francis's position is that if you are not on board with the ecumenical and interfaith movements, 
set forth at Vatican Council II, you're not part of the church. And he is incensed because liturgical the- traditionalists within the Catholic Church do not want to abide by the changes set forth from Vatican Council II. Well, that's not all. There is a, there is a real problem with the ecumenical movement. The unity is not based on is not based on the truth, it's based on compromise. The fatal flaw with the ecumenical movement from the outset was that this call to unity was based on compromise rather than the truth. I mean, there were the, the reasons that the different churches formed is they would get a little more like they would study the Bible and they would say, hey, this church uh, is, isn't doing some of the things the Bible says, so we're going to move over and start our own new movement. And then some people would break off of them, and some people would break off of them. And that's how you got all the different religions today, the Protestant religions. Well, the problem is, is that some of their long-held beliefs that originally broke them away from the other religion, and those biblical truths that the religious forefathers, that our religious forefathers, uh, back in the book of Acts, that they had worked and died for, were cast aside like so much obsolete baggage. These were, they were all joining in uh, unification of this belief system, but they were pushing the doctrines under the rug. And if the call for unity had been based on truth, Christians could have just come together and prayerfully sought out the truths around which they should unify. And they could have said, look, let's pray and study until we know what the Bible actually teaches. And then we could have had a true Christian rebirth and, and, and revival. That's not what happened. Ecumenism wasn't based on the truth. It was based on just compromise. Hey, we believe this for hundreds of years, but we all want to unify, and since the church we want to unify with doesn't agree with this, then the, the doctrines almost became a dirty word. And this was in direct contradiction to the Apostle Paul's instruction to Timothy that said, Timothy, take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, thou shalt save both thyself and them that hear thee. That's uh, 1 Timothy 4.16. But folks, doctrine we know is essential for salvation. Paul taught Timothy that doctrine uh, was essential for salvation, but in the ecumenical movement, doctrine became the blockade to everybody unifying, unless they were willing to compromise some of those long-held doctrines that had led them into their current position. So from 1962 until 1994, the ecumenical movement advanced rapidly. People were just, they were yielding up much of their uh, doctrinal belief systems. And by 94, think about this, Catholics, Lutherans, Methodists, Baptists, even Jews began exchanging churches, synagogues, pulpits, And it was amazing to watch since it has never happened before. Now, Vatican II was a call to unite. After Vatican Council II, the Catholic Church issued two documents that called for a new era of interfaith and ecumenical relations. And that call is very much alive today. In essence, the church no longer saw itself in opposition to other faiths. Remember, before this, 
If you weren't in, in the Catholic mind, if you weren't a Catholic, everybody was hellbound. Vatican II just made an about face on this. And there are a lot of people today that are Catholics that don't agree with that. And that's why Pope Francis is so incensed. Because he is Vatican II. Now, the goal was to seek a common ground between Catholic Church and other Christian denominations as well as other religions. The first document from Vatican II, Unitatis Redingratio, the decree on ecumenism, that was uh, 1964, issued a call for the unity of all Christian churches. The, the, the Catholic Church has dialogue with the, with the daughters, the Protestant daughters that have broken away. The second decree was Nostra Aetate, the declaration on the relation of the church, the Catholic Church, to non-Christian religions. That was in 1965. For the first time, it encouraged interreligious dialogue with the Catholic Church and other religions, not necessarily Protestants, but Buddhists and Zoroastrians and all, all kinds of religions. So as previously stated, as I previously stated, this is an effort by the Catholic Church to unite every religious entity, both Christian and non-Christian. Why? Though that's the question. The goal isn't to bring Protestants and those other religions to salvation. And we know that because the church is declaring that these people are already saved. Now remember, this is post-Vatican II. Uh, for instance, the New Catholic Catechism that was issued in 1994. You can look this up yourself. I just saw one the other day in a half-price bookstore right here in Garland, Texas. It states, their Catholic Catechism in 94 states the Muslims are saved. The, it states this, and I'm quoting from the Catechism. The Muslim, and you can look it up online even. The, the church's relationship with the Muslims, the plan of salvation also includes those who acknowledge the Creator in the first place amongst whom are Muslims, and these profess to hold the faith of Abraham, and together with us they adore the one merciful God, mankind's judge on the last day. So they're saying, hey, they're going to be saved as well. However, Muslims deny that Jesus was God or that He died on the cross. So why are they doing this? Well, remember Hans Kuhn's global ethic. We must sink our narrow differences for the cause of the world community practicing a culture of solidarity and relatedness. World government. Remember, the global leaders see the unification of the religions of the world as a solution to the global religious conflicts. Remember Gorbachev's book, Perestroika. And so at this point, these conflicting doctrines are seen as a stumbling block to the ultimate goal of a world governing body. Hence the quest for unity by the Catholic Church and others that is still being promoted today. Now, it's a lot of history, folks, but we're going to get into more of it and more of what the future holds on the other side of the break. I've been part of the End Time family from the beginning over 30 years ago when my parents, Irvin and Judy Baxter, began the ministry from the recliner in our living room. My name is Jana Robbins. I have the pleasure of connecting with our incredible partners every day. End Time is a small nonprofit that runs a high-traffic website, a daily TV and radio show, the Prophecy College in Jerusalem, and more. Although we have less than 30 team members, we are able to serve tens of millions of people each month. 
We survive on the goodness of God and donations averaging about $50. If everyone hearing this message gave $22, our financial needs would be met for the year. If you only give to one cause per month, please consider partnering with End Time to help get the message of our soon coming King out to the world. Call us at 1-800-END-TIME to give today or go to endtime.com to become a monthly or one-time partner. So, the move towards a one-world religious authority is alive and well today. I mean, it almost seems like the right thing to do or does it? That's the question you need to ask yourself. No matter what happens, you've always got to remember the ultimate goal. It is not to unite the religious institutions of the world under one biblically-based belief system, even though the Bible clearly states that there is only one way to heaven. John fourteen six, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. But that's not interfaithism, though. No. This is an effort to corral the belief system of every individual on the earth. And once that occurs, remember the global ethic, the global belief system. Once that occurs, everyone will be asked and eventually forced by this religious system to pledge allegiance to the Antichrist or his world-governing system. This is something you cannot participate in. Thank God for the prophecies of the Bible that let us know what's coming so we know how to prepare. And I can get a resolve about me that says, I will not conform to that. So this, the, the one world religion, it, it calls for a one world government. I mean, with the goal of a one world government in mind, it's easy to see why a call to unite all the religions of the world was issued decades ago. Global elitists realized early on that a global economic system could be imposed on the world's citizens through federal banks, identification numbering systems, but that religious values controlled the mind, the very mind, soul, and spirit of billions of people. And therefore, the world's religions must somehow be unified under one global religious authority that will align itself along with its followers to the one world government. They've got to get control of your mind. That's the goal. And with the information, or I should say with the, um, with the formation of the Parliament of World's Religions originally and now the interfaith and ecumenical efforts by the Catholic Church since Vatican II and others, it is clear to see the intentions of the global elite. They want to unite all the religions of the world under the leadership of the Catholic Church, which has repeatedly issued calls for a one-world government. Since Vatican II, every pope, every pope, has called for a world-governing body, including Pope Francis. You can read the last portion of his encyclical Laudato Si. He calls for a world-governing body to manage the quote-unquote chaos in the world. Now, let's talk about the future of a world, a one-world religion. This is something we've got to be watching for. The alignment of a one-world religion with a global governing authority is exactly what the Bible prophesies will occur in just the very near future. It's happening now. 
but the Antichrist will eventually usurp authority over world government, the false prophet over this world government, or the world religion. So it is the very union of politics and religion that the Antichrist and false prophet will hail from. And with that said, though, how will Bible-believing Christians recognize it to ensure that they never pledge allegiance to such a system in any way, shape, or form? Well, remember the alliance of these two beasts in Revelation 13. Revelation provides us with two specific snapshots of the world during the final three and one half years preceding the Battle of Armageddon and the Second Coming. Revelation 13 depicts two beasts in in alliance together. The first beast represents the one world government, the Antichrist, and the second beast portrays the one world religion led by the false prophet. And this same picture that was given in Revelation 13 is also given in Revelation 17 and 18. And it prophesies an alliance between a, a world government and a world religion. And both of these prophecies portray the world as it will be just before Armageddon and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it's very important for all of us who live in the end time to understand the role of the one world religion. It's not going to be the true religion, but a false religion. So it is as if there is a warning coming from God here. And it's so important that out of the the 22 chapters of the book of Revelation, God devoted three whole chapters to the one world religious system and the destruction thereof. I mean, the Bible prophesies that most people, even many churchgoers, will become part of this one world religious system. Uh, the Bible says, All that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, slain from the foundation of the world. That's a very key scripture. Everyone whose name is not found written in the book. Revelation 13, 8. The Bible is very clear that in the end time, there will be those that... this. I'm going to go over this real slow. The Bible is very clear that in the end time, there will be those that will think they are saved, but they're not. What a dangerous position to be in. But I don't want to go into the arms of this world religious system that say, everybody's saved, but I'm really not. Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. The Bible says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works. And then I, the, Lord, the Bible says, And then God will profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. Oh, I don't want that to happen to me. I want to make sure I know what the Bible says and tells me how to be saved. And then I'm not going to move off of that. Period. You can't pull me off of that. Not going to happen. If God will help me, I'm going to make it. And I want you guys to make it as well. (coughs) Along with the rest of the world, excuse me, they will join themselves with and pledge allegiance to the one world religion. The best way to avoid this is to recognize this institution for what it is and to obey the true plan of salvation given by the apostles in the New Testament. Jesus called this plan of salvation being born again. 
And for a complete explanation of how to be born again, get the free copy of the brochure, What Do You Mean Born Again? by calling 1-800-END-TIME or visit endtime.com. Secondly, you've got to know and understand biblical truths. One of the things that I deal with a lot here at End Time Ministries uh, with, not, not everybody obviously, but there are people will call in trying to push a new doctrine or a new belief system on me. And I'm dealing with biblical illiteracy in our society. People that just know a surface knowledge of uh, the Word of God, if that sometimes. And thank God for those of you that call in and you, you've been educated over the years and you've stuck, you've, you've just kind of dove into the Word of God and you've got a, a working knowledge of that. Wow. How important will that be in these times coming up? The Bible says, John 8, 32, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. People who do not know the truth, they're in bondage. And this will impede one's ability to fulfill God's purpose in our lives. John 5, 39 says, Search the Scriptures, for in them you think ye have eternal life, and they are they that testify of me. Man, folks, know your Bible in the end time. The Bible is the only book that can reveal how many gods there are. Of course, there are one, Deuteronomy 6, 4, that can share the story of what that one God's redemptive plan for the human race is, that can show how to be saved, teach you how to live as a Christian once you are saved, preparing you for eternity, and to give you the knowledge and confidence to teach and to lead others to Christ and to tell you which church is true and which church is false, and to provide prophecies written thousands of years ago, which are coming to pass right now. Folks, the Bible's the only book that can do that. There's no self-help book. There's no seminar you can go to. It's the Bible. Now, in the end time, a working knowledge of the Word of God is of utmost importance. Why? Because it's biblical illiteracy illiteracy that would allow somebody to believe the false prophets' deceptive messages that everyone can be saved, no matter what you believe, and then to pledge allegiance to the Antichrist and his world governing system. Imagine when the false prophet gets up. The Bible says he will deceive people by the miracles he was able to do in front of them. He's going to call fire down from heaven, and people will just look at this guy and say, He's the man. And he'll say, I want you to pledge allegiance to this world governing leader. And I'm telling you, the Bible says everyone whose name is not written in the Lamb's Book of Life will do that. But a working knowledge of the Word of God would keep somebody from doing that. Now, a great way to increase your knowledge of the Bible quickly is to enroll in our online Jerusalem Prophecy College. You say, now you're trying to sell me something. Listen to me. The Jerusalem Prophecy College is super easy. It's designed to bring you from spiritual... You say, Dave, I don't even know where to start. The Jerusalem Prophecy College is very cheap, it's very easy, and it will bring you from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity very quick. starts out with prophecy, then it goes into understand the Bible, keys to spiritual growth, life and teachings of Jesus Christ, and then Satan defeated, sonship restored. You, it is an absolute must that you go through that. If you're not in a good Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church, if you're just out there and you don't even know where to start, go to JerusalemProphecyCollege.com. We've got, I think, close to 6,000 students 
going through that right now all over the world. All you got to do is register, enroll in the first course. I think it's only like $59 a semester. Take you through all of this stuff. So why wait? I'd get started today. If you don't, if you just say, I don't even know what to do. I, I, I had somebody ask me for a good um, study Bible. I don't know of one. I don't, I, I, there's not one. I have a study Bible, but it hasn't really helped me that much. And I mean, I've looked at it and I thought, well, I, you know, I, it's nice and cool and it looks good, but I need, I need, I need a God spirit led individual to help walk me through some of these things. I've went over it for years. My father-in-law is one of the most spirit led men of God I've ever known. He's the one teaching end time university and all the other different things in the Jerusalem Prophecy College. So know your Bible. Secondly, um, it's, it is imperative. Be a member of a good Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. That's another way you can be brought up to speed very quickly. Make sure you're involved in a church that is teaching the Word of God, period, without fear or without favor. If you've got people that are just tickling your ears, man, I'd be careful about that. And once, a person, once, once you're born again, you become a part of the body of Christ. The Bible says, for as uh, the body is one... And hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are of one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free and have been made to drink of one Spirit, for the body is one member but many. The church is the body of Christ. You've got to be a member of that. A Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church that will teach the Bible line upon line, precept upon precept, every verse, not skip one, that church can help you get to heaven. If you need a good church, email me or, or Doug Norvell, drobbins at endtime.com, dnorvell at endtime.com. We'll help you find a good church in your area. We've been doing it for, uh, what, probably almost 20 years, more than 20 years now, close to 25 years. We've been helping people find churches all over the world that will teach them the truth, help them to be saved, learn to live as a Christian so we can all prepare for the soon second coming of Jesus Christ. God bless. This has been End of the Age, brought to you by the faithful partners of End Time Ministries. If you're not currently a partner with End Time Ministries or if you would like more information, we invite you to call us at one 800 end time that's 1-800-363-8463 or visit us online at endtime.com.